So at this time, I'll be reading today's scripture passage, which is Luke 22, verses 39 through 46. This is on page 720 in the church Bibles, if you have one of those. And if you need a Bible, um, someone can bring one to you. So Luke 22, 39 to 46. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw from them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The word of the Lord. Tonight I have three meditations on the Garden of Gethsemane. So we're in Luke this evening, and each meditation is meant to be um, a little bit different, but drawing us to the Lord. As you can see, we've done it a little bit differently tonight. We've lowered the lights during the worship time. We've lit up the cross. Uh, we're, we're raising the lights during a, our, our scripture time. Um, but it's meant to be a little bit more meditative, a little bit more focusing on God's word together. Uh, sometimes we can come to a church service and just kind of sit through the worship and sit through the sermon and walk out, and nothing really has changed in our life. Like, we haven't really... Um, grown in Christ-likeness or, or really held on to anything. And so this is an attempt to do it a little bit differently uh, and to really um, focus on the Word. So there's going to be three of these meditations, and then after each one of them, we're going to have a, kind of a, a, a time of uh, silence and prayer. That's why this mic is in the center aisle. So if uh, you would like to offer a prayer, uh, just get up, and, and if you would need to stay in your seat because that's where you feel comfortable, that's fine. Uh, but if you want, uh, whoever, uh, maybe Pat's watching the live stream, if you want her to hear it, uh, please uh, say the prayer into the mic. Uh, and then we'll come back up and the worship team will sing a little bit uh, more. But that's, that's an attempt, uh, and then we're going to go back into another um, uh, message, and we'll do three of these. Um, but it's an attempt to make sure that we're not like... Uh, approaching Jesus and his death and resurrection and, and, and suffering the kind of the passion narrative in like a detached observational manner. Like we don't want to view this as like an operating room where we're just watching the operation take place and it doesn't really affect us. We want God to do open heart surgery on us. We want God to change our hearts. Uh, and so this is what tonight is about. So let me pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ Jesus in the garden. Uh, uh, we do remember uh, him. He was there at nighttime. It's a little bit dimmer, and uh, we want to, um, I don't know, we want to not just learn about this, but we want to kind of experience it a little bit through your word, through your Holy Spirit, and uh, learn whatever you want us to learn and take away whatever you want us to take away. Uh, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So last week we talked about the triumphant entry. We talked about Jesus parading into Israel, uh, well, into Jerusalem, uh, and the crowds welcoming him, the crowds being excited. Uh, and then we didn't talk about it last week, but right after this, Jesus 
uh, he came into Jerusalem, and the first place he went was to the temple. And he drove out the, the money changers, and he called them a den of robbers. And this really upset the chief priests, the leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, so much so that they wanted to kill Jesus even more. Now, they didn't like him before this. They already wanted to kill him, but they really began to set in motion a plan to kill Jesus, to trap him. And so if you read kind of the Passion Week, kind of the the time span between his entry into Jerusalem and his crucifixion, you see Jesus teaching in the temple and in the courtyard, and then what happens is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they send in like these spies to kind of trap Jesus in their, their little uh, games. They give them like kind of one option or the other and both are bad. And Jesus finds, of course, a third option and they don't trap him. Uh, and so they decide to try a different approach. They hire uh, the disciple Judas to hand Jesus over when the crowds aren't present because the crowds love Jesus. They're excited about him and they're kind of acting as a barrier. And so they figured out a time. And so this is where we're coming to tonight. The night before Jesus' crucifixion, uh, him and the disciples, they celebrate Passover. Passover is the same meal that the Hebrew slaves ate when they left Egypt, when they left captivity under Pharaoh. Uh, And in this meal, Jesus prophesies his coming suffering. He says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And so the disciples, like, Jesus keeps telling them something is coming, but they don't get it. They don't understand. Uh, It's like they have earplugs in. And they begin to argue, like, who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom? They still think Jesus is setting up, like, this earthly kingdom, this earthly domain. One of them, they even offer Jesus their swords, and Jesus doesn't want any of that. Now, it's actually easy to kind of judge the disciples, like, why didn't you get it? But I think we can actually fall into a similar pattern, right? Where we're kind of building our kingdoms. We're thinking about like, what's the next, what's the next step for me, God? Like, what's the next great thing you want me to do? Or, or who am I going to become? And and we can kind of think about ourselves a lot and begin to get wrapped up in our own kingdoms. And tonight is an invitation to get wrapped up in Christ's kingdom, to really think about Jesus and to focus on him, to really try to understand what he's teaching us through his word. Because I do think he's inviting us, just like he invited the disciples, to just be with him, to be present with him, to not worry about like the kingdom and, and what we're trying to do and accomplish in our everyday lives, but just to focus on Christ Jesus, to just go with him to the garden and be present with Christ spiritually in our garden this evening. And so would you do that? Would you just kind of push everything out, push all your other plans, homework, school, work, whatever it is, Just focus on being spiritually present with Christ Jesus through the worship, through the word, uh, through the community uh, this evening. Be with Christ. Be with Jesus so that you can hear him and so that you can hear him speaking to you. Because I think Jesus has something for each of us that he wants to teach us. And if we listen, maybe we'll hear it. So Jesus leads his disciples into the garden. It's at the base of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus turns to them and says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then he goes a little ways away from them. He kneels down and he begins to pray. So what does Jesus mean with this? Pray that you won't fall into temptation. I think he means that prayer defeats temptation. Prayer gives us resilience when tests come our way. See, Jesus knows what's coming. (laughs) What's coming the next 
morning, even that night is his trial and then his crucifixion. And he knows that in order for them to face it, they need to pray. They need God's strength instead of their own. Now, we know the story, right? We know that they fall asleep and they don't pray. And then Judas and the soldiers come. And then what happens? (laughs) They run away. They flee because they didn't spend time in prayer. And they needed to spend time in prayer. They needed to spend time in prayer so that they would be strong and so that they could walk alongside Jesus through this suffering and through this sorrow but God had other plans and uses them in their weakness. And I think they got it. They, I think they understood something was coming because it says they were exhausted from sorrow. Now I want us to think about our own lives and the trials and the temptations that we face and that we don't understand. Like they didn't get it. They didn't really understand. They, they understood some, but they didn't get it fully. And we ought, maybe we ask God, God, why am I going through this trial? Why am I going through this temptation? Why are you putting me through this test? Why are you allowing Satan or as evil ones to do this to me. And when this happens, we have two options. We can either run away, like the disciples end up doing, or we can press in to Christ. We can press into the Father like Jesus does. So I hope tonight is, a, is an invitation that prayer defeats that temptation to run away and prayer leads us into Christ. Instead of drawing away into silence, we can draw near into a conversation, into his presence. But why do you think Jesus tests us? Have you ever thought about that? Like, why does God allow for me to go through tough times, through trials and temptations? Does God not know what's inside of you? (laughs) Does God not know, like, how you will respond? I think he does. He doesn't need to test you. The reason God tests you is so that you will know. so that you will understand what's in your heart, so that you will turn to Christ Jesus, and so that you will turn to the Father. So temptation helps us succeed in the trial, and and what I mean by succeed is just simply turn to the Father instead of to ourselves, to admit that we're not strong enough, but God is. Prayer defeats temptation with Christ's presence. Now, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, there's a parable that Jesus tells of a sower He's sowing the gospel message. And he's sowing it to different types of soil, which are kind of different types of people and their hearts. And each one of these soils responds differently. And Jesus says this about one of the soils. He says, those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it. But they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. So some seeds are thrown in the soil that's rocky, and they spring up, but then they, they die because they don't have any root. There's a time of testing, and they fall away. Maybe you've seen a friend or two that you thought they had a genuine relationship with God, and then a test came, and they just kind of fell away. Well, how can that not happen to us? I don't want that to happen to any of you. Well, through prayer, through seeking Christ, through seeking to be in his presence, prayer defeats temptation with Christ's presence. Prayer gives us strong roots. Do you know that redwood trees are some of the oldest and tallest trees on earth? Some of them can grow uh, for uh, 2,000 years, and they can grow over 300 feet high. That's a pretty tall tree, and you would think to get that tall, to be that strong, they would need all the sunlight and all the water, and they would kind of push the other trees away, and they would kind of survive on their own. You would think that they would have really deep roots to kind of anchor them into the ground, but actually redwood trees have really shallow roots. 
Their roots only go about six to 12 feet deep. 300 foot tree, six to 12 feet deep. But they actually spread out horizontally. They spread out uh, to the other trees and they wrap around the other tree roots and the other bases of the other trees. So that even if a tree is logged or it falls down, its root system can actually still support other trees and help keep them alive. So this kind of tells us that like when you and I are feeling down, when we're isolated, like we need a strong community, we need a strong root system. And prayer is one of the things that helps us do that. It helps us connect to each other and it helps us connect to Christ. We need to be connected to Christ, but we can't be in isolation. We can't just go it alone. We have to go it together. God wants to give us a church community. And so when we pray together, when we support each other, we become strong and we focus on Christ together. Prayer connects us to God and to each other. Jesus asked his disciples to pray with him and his disciples fell asleep. (laughs) Jesus was alone. His his closest companions, Peter, James, and John, they were supposed to support him and they didn't. That's what... We don't want to make the same mistake. We want to support and love and care for those around us and pray for them when they need support. And when we need support, we need brothers and sisters in Christ who can lift us up and keep us strong through prayer. And so prayer defeats isolationism. It defeats uh, uh, being alone. It builds community. It builds unity. And so as a church, I pray that we would be rooted in prayer, that we would hold each other up, And I want to challenge each one of us this week to pray together with another Christian. So either get together with in person, someone from your church family, or call them and pray with them. I hope that you've been praying this week through the 40 days of prayer and fasting. If you haven't, it's not too late to get started. That you would join with your root system, with your church, and pray for the different families that we have on each day. And maybe you can get together with someone and pray through the whole first section or the whole document. Prayer defeats temptation. It helps us stand strong in tests. And it does this by connecting us with Christ and with each other. Let's continue um, through a time of silence here. And then if anyone feels called to get up and pray, uh, please do that. Luke chapter 22, verse 41 and 42 say this. He withdrew about a stone's throw away beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So when we pray this prayer, when we see this prayer in the Gospel of Luke, it reminds us of the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, right now, Jesus, in his time of suffering, as he's getting ready to go to the cross, he's actually modeling for the disciples what it means to follow God, what it means to love God and be in relationship with God. He's modeling how to pray. He's teaching them something. And he's he's modeling that when we pray, we're to pray for our Father's will, the Heavenly Father, God's will before our own. That's really kind of what I want to meditate on for a little bit here, that we as Christians, 
We're to pray on our Father's will first before our own will. It's so easy to come to God and say, God, here's the list of things that I want. Amen. (laughs) And then to just walk away. You know, but instead, if we're to follow Jesus' example, we say, our Father, I want your will, whatever that is, no matter how good, no matter how painful, no matter how easy or hard, I want your will first And then, here's what I would like. (laughs) This is where I would like your will to go. Because sometimes God has a much different plan than we do, right? But if he's good, we can trust that his plan is good, even if it doesn't always feel good. I want us to look at Christ's posture in this moment. What does Jesus do? He kneels down. Kneeling is a posture of submission, of humility. He's lowering himself. He's getting near the the grass or the dirt or the rocks. Whatever's there, he's bringing himself down. Matthew's gospel takes it one step further and says, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed. See, Jesus knows what is coming. (laughs) And what is coming is the worst thing imaginable. He's going to drink the cup of God's wrath. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, it speaks over and over again of the cup of God's wrath. This is an Old Testament passage, Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16. It says this, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. How about the Psalms? So Jeremiah, you're like, okay, that makes sense that there would be kind of a a very like judgment, wrath-filled verse in there. But the Psalms, they also talk about the cup of God's wrath. Psalm 75, verses seven through eight. It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Now, I like, I'm going to admit something to you guys. I like the series Harry Potter. Now, you don't have to like it uh, to understand this illustration. Uh, So if you don't like it, just give me a little grace in this moment and bear with me. Uh, But the author J.K. Rowling actually picks up on this imagery of the cup of God's wrath in one of her books. Uh, there's this scene and when, when the professor, Professor Albus Dumbledore, Dumbledore he's kind of like the old, lovable headmaster of the school, but he knowingly has to drink a curse. It's called the drink of despair, and he drinks it out of a cup, and he, he sacrifices himself by drinking that cup to defeat the Dark Lord and to kind of save um, the land. You know, it's a typical uh, fantasy kind of book. But he drinks this cup, and it's an awful scene. He drinks it, and he screams, and he drinks some more, and he's just going out of his mind, and it weakens him, and it eventually leads to his death. And there's some, like, biblical imagery in that. When I read that, I was like, wow, this really is probably the closest thing I've gotten to kind of fleshing out this a little bit more. But even that, if you've read it, or you've just heard me talk about it, it doesn't even begin to describe what Jesus went through. It's like a tiny drop in the vast ocean of God's wrath that Jesus drank for us. See, Jesus took 
God's wrath upon himself. And what was that? It's God's judgment of sin, God's hate of sin, God's, God's hate of all that is wrong in the world and all that is broken. All of our, our sin was placed upon him. And Jesus, for the first time in his entire life, his entire existence, right, even before he became human, right, son of God for all eternity past, he was abandoned. He was forsaken. Now, we already got a glimpse of that, that it bothered Jesus to be left alone, right? He went to Peter, James, and John and said, like, you need to stay awake <laughs> and pray. Jesus didn't like to be left alone in that moment. But can you imagine if not just them have abandoned him, but his father, his heavenly father has abandoned Christ Jesus? He has forsaken him? the one that he has known for all eternity, that he's been in love with and has received love from. His father sustained him throughout his earthly ministry. There are times when Jesus withdrew and spent time in prayer. That's being forsaken. That's being held back, that relationship. And instead, in its place, is God's judgment, his anger. That's the drink of despair. That's a very bitter cup. And so Jesus prays something I think that we would all pray if we were faced in a, with a similar situation. Father, take this cup from me. I don't want this cup, but I want your will. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus humbles himself. He submits to his Father's will. And he models for us what it means to submit to God's will even when it's not easy. Jesus submits and accepts God's decision. And so when we pray, we should also pray, not my will be done, but your will be done. And so let's do that. Let's pray for our Father's will above our own. And when I wrap up here in a moment, maybe one of you or two of you will come and pray for our Father's will to be done above our own. What does that look like? Father, I really want this promotion or vacation or thing, fill in the blank, whatever that thing is that you want. But if it's not your will, give me what you want instead. Don't let me get my way if it's not what you want. Father, if it's your will, please protect our church and our ministries as we serve you here and abroad. But if it's your will for us to undergo hardship of any kind for your name's sake, may that happen. Father, please cure me of this physical illness. Father, please cure me of this mental illness. Father, please take this thorn in my flesh away unless it's your will for me to have those things so that I can glorify you through my weakness. Let's pray like that. It might not feel safe, but to pray and to be in the Father's will is the safest place we can be. Jesus cries, Abba, Father, in Mark's version. Abba is like calling out Dad. It's personal. It's relational. We're teaching Elijah to say Dada, and he's sort of getting it. <laughs> we can turn to our Heavenly Father and cry out Dada. Jesus doesn't stop praying to his Father, even though, even though he knows what's about to happen, because he knows his Father still loves him. Our Heavenly Father still loves you, no matter what you're going through or been through. And so that's why we can always pray, Our Father in heaven, 
May your will be done. So let's pray that silently in our hearts right now. And if the Lord is moving you to lead us together in a prayer, would you stand up and do that? Luke 22, verses 43 through 44. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Matthew and Mark's Gospels don't record the angel appearing or Jesus sweating so profusely that it seems like he's bleeding. But these two verses, I think Mark includes them to really highlight Jesus' humanity. Jesus is God. He's the Son of God, but he's also human. He sweats. (laughs) He needs supernatural assistance for what's about to happen to him. It's apparently possible, this never happened to me, but it's possible to be under so much stress that you actually sweat blood. Doctors call this hematidrosis. It's when extreme anguish or physical strain causes your capillary blood vessels to dilate and burst, mixing sweat and blood. Uh, There's a lot of humanity there. (laughs) Now, whether that's what happened or it was just like blood, doesn't really matter. It's that Jesus was under so much stress and pressure under this wrath, this coming agony, and he needed his father's comfort. And his father was about to take that comfort away. This trial that Jesus goes through, that we're going to remember in the next coming weeks, it devastated him emotionally, physically, psychologically. It was barbaric. The cross was just awful suffering. To be forsaken by his father was even worse. What would ever drive someone to do that? (laughs) I don't think fame could do it. I don't think pride. I think only love. I only think Christ's love for us, for his people, for his bride, the church. Jesus suffered for you to win you. See, he, he stood under the compactor of God's wrath so that you're not crushed, so that I'm not crushed, so that we get to spend eternity together in eternal joy knowing God, knowing Christ Jesus and knowing each other. See, it all comes down to the blood. It all comes down to the blood of Christ. Leviticus says this. It says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. I once donated blood, (laughs) the Red Cross, and I did not do it for selfless reasons. I did it because it was tax season, and I got a coupon on my taxes if I donated my blood. I donated my blood selfishly. Jesus donated his blood selflessly. He gave it away for you and for me. One of the questions they ask you when you donate blood is, have you like touched someone else's blood? They don't like that because it can carry disease. It can, can get you sick. 
our blood, our human blood, is impure. A physical reality kind of stands for a spiritual reality, but Christ's blood, Christ's blood is good and holy and pure. And it's only that kind of blood that when shed could make payment for my sins and for your sins. And if Jesus has never paid with his blood for your sins, I pray that tonight will be the night that you receive that gift. How do you do that? Just by repenting of your sins, saying, Jesus, I'm sorry. Only you can forgive me of my sins. And guess what? Even if you already prayed that, you can pray that again. That's what it means to be a Christian, just to pray that again. Jesus, thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Would you pray that in your heart right now? Jesus, thank you for forgiving me of my sins, for paying the penalty with your blood for what I have done wrong. Thank you for curing me of my sickness. Colossians 1:19 through 20 says this, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It matters that Jesus shed his blood for you. I hope that you will receive this gift. I hope you will receive this blood transfusion tonight. Receive it once again. Jesus, would you do open heart surgery on us, but only if, if you also are the one who's our blood donor, who gives us blood full of eternal life, keeps our hearts pumping forever and ever and ever. We're gonna go to a little time of prayer again. If you feel courageous, you can stand up and, and say a prayer. And then we're gonna sing nothing but the blood. And then we're gonna sing another song and we'll take the offering during that second song.